The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Isaiah 5. You just heard read. It sure sounds negative, doesn't it? But what's going on is God is, is saying through the prophet that he planted his people in Israel in order for them to bear fruit. And instead, they were fruitless. And we see this come to a head in the passage we're looking at this morning. In Luke chapter 20, Jesus arrives in Jerusalem. And this is where he's been headed for some time. And uh, what I want us to see is the effect of Jesus coming into Jerusalem and going into the temple. We're told back in John 1 that it describes Jesus as the true light that coming into the world enlightens every man. The word enlightens, what Tizo means, uh, he shines a light on them, and you can see them for what they really are. And so here's what happens. When Jesus comes back to Jerusalem and he enters into the temple, he begins to clean house. And they're really offended by it. What's happening is he is revealing the truth about the condition of the temple. Now, I want, to look, I want to look at this passage, and then I want us to think about how this applies to us, because whether you, you know it or not, the Bible says that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, and that the local church is a temple, that we join together as a people to worship and serve Christ, and the presence of Jesus always shines a light on us and upon our hearts, and we see the truth about ourselves. Let me start reading from uh, Luke chapter 19, first of all, in verse 45, just these last few verses where it talks about him going into the temple. And listen to what Jesus does. The meek and mild Jesus. Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling. That is, they were selling uh, animals for sacrifice. Now, this was a great business because you you had to have a certified sacrifice, and therefore they could sell these sacrifices at a price, at a profit, and it was really a good business. And uh, so Jesus goes in and he drives them out of the temple, saying to them, as it is written, and my house, that is God speaking, and my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a robber's den. And he was teaching daily in the temple. But the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men, that is the religious leaders, those who were over the temple, among the people were trying to destroy him. They didn't like this true light coming into the temple and revealing what was really going on. And the last verse of chapter 19 says, and they could not find anything that they might do for all the people were hanging on every word that he said. Now what I'd like us to do is look at... uh, Now, what I want to talk about is when the true light shines in the temple. And we're going to talk first about what happens when the true light shines in the temple in Jerusalem. And we'll see what happens. And then I want us to ask ourselves, what happens when the true light shines in our temple? That is in our lives and in the life of our local church. What kind of effects does it bring? I think this is exactly what revival is. It's when the light of the presence of the glory of Christ is shining brightly among God's people. It lets us see ourselves for who we really are, and it lets us see where our hearts should be. 
when the, those words in Isaiah 5, when, when uh, the prophet is talking about how God had these expectations of his people in, in the land where he placed them to bear fruit, instead they bore no fruit. And, um, and so let's take a look at this. First of all, uh, what I want you to notice, I'm going to read this first section. The first 18 verses tells you one thing that this light reveals, and that is that they were rejecting Christ's authority. Listen to these words. On one of the days while he was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders confronted him. And they spoke, saying to him, Tell us by what authority you are doing these things. Now, what he had been doing is what we saw in the the last chapter right there at the end. He was driving out the money changers and those who were selling sacrifices. It turned it into a business. And they go on and they say, who is the one who gave you this authority? They're challenging Jesus' authority. Now, this is the end of three and a half years of public ministry. Jesus is the king of glory. He's the high king of heaven. He is the Messiah for which they were waiting, and yet they don't recognize him because he's not what they expected, and he's not what they want. And so Jesus answers them. This should should teach you, don't ever get into an argument with Jesus Christ. Because listen to how he answers. He said, I will also ask you a question, and you tell me. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Remember the baptism of John. John came preaching the, the gospel of the kingdom, preaching that the Jews should prepare themselves for the coming of Messiah because he was very near. He was introducing Jesus to them, the Messiah of God, who had come in the fulfillment of prophecy. And so he asked these Pharisees who had rejected John's message because they were afraid that they would lose their place of authority and leadership. And so he asked them, what was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? And listen to their reasoning. It says, and they reasoned among themselves saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us to death. <laughs> And they are convinced that John was a prophet because he was a prophet and he had the signs of a prophet and God validated his ministry. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell the people this parable. Now, this par- again, this parable is revealing exactly what's true of these Pharisees and the people of Israel who had rejected the Messiah. Here's the parable. A man planted a vineyard and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey for a long time. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers. That is, they've rented this vineyard, and so they're supposed to pr- produce a crop so that they would give him some of the produce of the vineyard. But the vine growers beat him, that is, beat this servant that he sent. He's talking about the prophets. But they, the vine growers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he proceeded to send another slave, and they beat him also, and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he proceeded to send a third, and this one also was wounded and cast out. Time after time, God sent prophets to Israel to confront them about 
their lack of fruitfulness, their lack of faith, their lack of loyalty to the living God who had placed them in the land. The owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I know what I'll do. I'll send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the vine growers saw him, that is the son of God, the son of the vine vineyard owner, they reasoned with one another saying, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy their vineyard, these vine growers, and will give the vineyard to others. When they heard it, they said, may it never be. And then verse 17, but Jesus looked at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected became the chief cornerstone. Now the cornerstone was that part of a building that had to be perfectly shaped. It had to be perfect. And that was the stone that was laid down and the house was built around it. Built based upon its trueness. And so he says, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. Now the builders he's talking about are the leaders of Israel. That's what they were supposed to be doing. Vance Havner preached this passage and he called it the stupidity of the specialists. Here's the, here's the, the, the professionals and they've rejected the, the stone that's to be the chief cornerstone. Everyone who falls on, this, on that stone will be broken. This is Jesus again. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. But on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. Now, being broken to pieces has, is a picture of being humbled before God. So everyone who falls on this stone, places their trust in him, will be broken before God and see the truth of what's really going on. They did not recognize the true identity of this cornerstone. Even though they were the builders, they were the ones who should have known. And they didn't know. They didn't recognize him or acknowledge his authority. And then he goes on, and this is the second uh, thing that's revealed about them. And that is that they were abandoning true worship. Listen to this. The scribes and the chief priests tried to lay hands on him that very hour. And they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke this parable against them. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous in order that they might catch him in some statement. In other words, they want to catch him in a statement and condemn him before the people so the people will believe he is a fool. So that they could deliver him into the rule, under the rule and the authority of the governor. They questioned him saying, teacher, we know that you speak and teach correctly. That's flattery. You are not partial to any, anyone, but teach the way of God in truth. And then they ask him a question, an entrapment. They say to him, is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, the people of Israel were under the heel of Rome, and they had to pay taxes to Rome. But they had been told that they were under the rule of God, that they were to live in freedom under the rule of God. But now they were under the rule of Rome because of their sin. And so they're trying to entrap Jesus. Should we pay taxes to Caesar? Aren't we supposed to give our tithe to the living God? But he detected their trickery and said to them, show me a denarius. There was a coin, which, a Roman coin, which represented basically a day's wage. 
He says, show me a denarius. And then he asks them, whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. And he said to them, render to Caesar that, the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Now, Caesar's image was on the coin. Where's God's image? It's on you. You were created in God's image. Adam was created in God's image and after his likeness to represent God in the world. And so he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's from these coins, but render to God the things that are God's, that is yourselves. And they were unable to catch him in a saying in the presence of the people because they wanted to entrap him. They wanted him to make, to make him look foolish. They were unable to catch him in saying in the presence of the people and being amazed at his answer, they became silent. They became silent. They didn't know what to say. So the first thing that the, the light reveals is the fact that they are rejecting the authority of the one who has all authority, the son of man. And secondly, they are abandoning true worship. They don't understand that they're supposed to give themselves to God because they were created in his image and for his glory. And then the third thing is they were tolerating false teaching. Listen to this, verse 27. Now there came to him some of the Sadducees. The Sadducees were a sect in Israel, and they had a particular doctrinal understanding. They had some things that they didn't believe. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They believed that you lived in this life and then it was over and there was no resurrection. And they were always haranguing people because of that. A cult is a group that claims to be a part of the true people of God, and yet they believe in an error that is, flies in the face of the truth that God has given us in his word. So there came to him some Sadducees who say that there's no resurrection. And they question him. These Sadducees think they can trap him because they've trapped many people. You ever have a Jehovah's Witness come to your door and make you feel like you're stupid because you, they ask you questions you can't answer? That's what the Sadducees did. They said to him, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies having a wife and, his, and his, he is childless, he dies without having any children, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother, that he would have children. Who would inheritance would inherit his inheritance that was in the Mosaic law, and so they say now there were seven brothers this is a this is their parable. there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died childless, the second and the third married her, and in the same way, all seven died, having no children. all the brothers married her, there were seven brothers, and they all married her, and none of them had children. And so finally the woman died also, and then they ask him the question that is going to stump him. This is stump Jesus. And so they say, in the resurrection, therefore, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. And Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age, that is, after the resurrection... From the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot even die anymore because they are like angels and are sons of God, having being sons of the resurrection. 
but that the dead are raised, even Moses showed. See, they didn't believe in the resurrection. They thought this would prove there's no resurrection. This would be totally confusing, wouldn't it? Jesus says, even Moses showed in the passage about the burning bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham. When he describes his, his encounter with God, he said, he's the God of Abraham. Well, Abraham had been long gone. And the God of Isaac, and Isaac had been long gone. And the God of Jacob. And Jesus says, now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. All live to him. Some of the scribes answered and said, teacher, you have spoken well. <laughs> For they did not have courage to question him any longer about anything. They had brought their enemies in to question him, thought they could stump him and make him look foolish. And Jesus says, that's a foolish idea you have. You don't understand life after the resurrection. And then in the fourth thing that he reveals to them in verses 40 through 40, 41 through 44 is they were ignoring biblical wisdom. Listen to this. Then he said to them, how is it that they say the Christ is David's son? The Messiah is David's son. Why do people say, why do the Bible, those who read the Bible say that the Messiah is David's son, his descendant? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool to your feet. Therefore, David calls him, that is his descendant, Lord. And how is he his son? The Bible teaches these two things, that the Messiah is a descendant of David. And yet David says that the Lord of heaven called the Messiah Lord. And David called him Lord. So how could he be a descendant of David and David call him Lord? Well, they were seeing it right before their eyes because the Messiah was standing right there. And he was a descendant of David. He was born in Bethlehem, the city of David. He was a descendant of David in his humanity. But he was the eternal son of God. And then finally, the fifth thing that he turns the light on is they're practicing showy religion. Do you know that God hates showy religion? One of the things that's real clear in the New Testament, you don't have any, you don't have any honorific titles in the church. The word pastor or elder or deacon, those aren't honorific titles. Those are functional titles. They don't make a person above and beyond the, the congregation. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. But they have a function. And so they're functional titles. And that's because we don't practice showy religion. Listen to what this says, beginning in verse 45. And while the people were listening, he said to the disciples, beware of the scribes. Why? Because they walk around in long robes, clerical robes, and love respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Get it? They have this status above everybody else, and they show it by the way they dress. And chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets who devour widows' houses. They take advantage of their place as leaders among the people of God, and they devour widows' houses and for appearance sake offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. 
And then it goes on in the next chapter for a few verses. He says, he looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. And he saw a poor widow putting in two small copper coins. Kind of like a penny. Two pennies. And he said, truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all of them. For they all gave out of their surplus, their discretionary funds. They put into the offering from that. But she, out of her poverty, put all that she had to live on. What does this have to do with with you and I? What do these things have to do with you and I? Well, I want you to know that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. If you're a believer, the Holy Spirit lives in you. That's one, of the, that's one of the things that happens to us when we come to faith in Christ. We become a temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives in us. And so we have certain privileges and responsibilities before the living God. We're to live as temples of the Holy Spirit. That's what we've been called to. And so when Jesus shows up, the light that enlightens every man... Now, this word can mean that he opens your mind and lets you see things they really are, which sometimes is a very positive thing. We see who Christ really is, but it also opens our eyes to who we are and how we're living. And so in this case, he confronts them, the people in the temple of God and the leaders in the temple of God. These are the leaders of the vineyard that God planted in Israel, and they were to bear fruit. And you know what it is about fruit? If you have a fruit tree, it brings you great joy to eat the fruit from that fruit tree if it's good fruit, right? And that's the picture here. That God planted them in Israel so that what they produced in their lives would bring pleasure to the Father. And the same thing is true of you and me and us as a congregation. Do our lives, do we produce in our lives what the Father finds pleasure in? Paul, when he prayed for the Colossians, says, I, I'm praying for you, and I want you to see how the word of God works in your life so that you might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects. And so the Father looks at us as temples of the Holy Spirit, and us as a congregation as a temple of the Holy Spirit. And when Jesus shows up through his word and in all kinds of ways in our lives, he reveals the truth about our hearts. And so in this case, he's confronting them over the fact that they were rejecting the true authority of Jesus Christ. Is Jesus Christ an authority in your life? Do you live your life in response to his commands to you as his people? Now, you may think, well, I don't know what his commands are. That's your fault. Because his commands to us are very clear. In fact, we're told when we make disciples, we're supposed to train them how to obey the commands of Christ. He's commanded us to love one another as he has loved us. How is that? Well, he laid down his life for us. And so we treasure one another as brothers and sisters in Christ to the point we would lay down our lives for each other. Now, the opposite of that is what the Bible describes the flesh And this is what the flesh desires. The flesh is just a word that's used to describe us in our fallenness apart from God. 
But he says the problem is sometimes believers can get carnal. And the word that he, he uses there, carnal, is related to this idea of fleshly, being fleshly. Even though we're saved and we have the Holy Spirit, we can begin to have attitudes that are fleshly. And what, what is that? It's when we look out for number one. Number one, not being God, but ourselves. And so when my selfishness starts showing through, it's like when if Christ is present, it reveals to me that I am not walking in the Spirit. I'm not living as though I'm a temple of the Holy Spirit. And what do I need to do? I need to repent. I need to turn. This is what Jesus, what, what's happened to the people who've listened to Jesus. They've repented and turned to him in order to return. One of the things that... Um, some of you grown up with in churches where every year you would have a revival or two. You actually scheduled revivals. The churches used to do this. And the hope was that Jesus would show up during that revival and we would see the truth about ourselves and we would turn and repent. Now, we are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And guess what? The Holy Spirit doesn't leave you. I remember um, sitting under a a pastor who said, uh, when I was a kid, he said, guess what? The Holy Spirit always comes to church. So when you don't come to church on Sunday, you've left him. You've separated yourself from the Spirit. You're in church and he's home. I mean, he's in church and you're back home. That's baloney. The Holy Spirit is living in you. And he's with you everywhere you are. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. But what Christ does, what the presence of Jesus Christ does, and we encounter him continually in his word and in our daily lives, and what he does, he shines the light into our hearts. And we know the truth about ourselves, and it drives us to repentance and to faith. He actually expects us to live for him. Do you know what that means, to live for Christ? that I live my life for him and for his glory. And so I take his commandments seriously. And I trust the Holy Spirit to empower me to walk in obedience to his commandments. We're supposed to love each other the way Christ loved us. Now, if I had you all stand up and we got, we got in a big circle, and I'd say, I'd like you to go over and pick out the people that you love and you're willing to lay down your life for them. And so you picked out two people. What does that say? It says that we're not obeying his command. Now, his command is supernatural, and it's only the Spirit of God that can empower us and motivate us and control us so that we could actually obey the commands of Jesus Christ. So what he's saying to them, I take it, I've been wrestling over this as he's said it to me. First of all, that I have to submit to the authority of Jesus Christ. I have to submit to the authority of Jesus Christ. I want to submit to the authority of Jesus Christ. That's the amazing thing, isn't it? It's the fact that we want to. Why do we want to? Because he's changed us. Because he has saved us, regenerated us, and given us a desire to walk in obedience to the commands of Christ. But the frustration comes, Paul says in in Romans chapter 7, 
is that we realize in ourselves we are not competent to obey the commands of Christ. And so what do we do? Well, after a period of time, we begin to think, well, that's not really necessary. What's necessary is I go to church every week and I give in the offering and I do the basic stuff. And yet Christ has called us to obey his radical commands, to lay down our lives for each other. That's amazing, isn't it? And that he's the one who is in authority here. There's no man that's in authority. It's, well, it's the man, Jesus Christ. He's our intercessor, and he is the one who has all authority. And we don't ask him, who gave you the authority to rule over us? Instead, we bow the knee and say, thank you for dying for us. Thank you for coming into the world and laying down your life for us. And we are so grateful that you are our king and our Lord, and we submit to his commands. And then the other thing, the second thing is they abandon true worship. Have we abandoned true worship? Do we worship him? Do we exalt him? Do we, do we give to him our best? Do we give to him our life? Not just our treasure, but our heart? Do we actually love him above all things? That's what he's called us to. And this is what Jesus reveals to us when he comes close. This is what the true light shines when he shines into our temple. This is what we discover, where our heart is. Where is my heart? What is it that I love above all other things? Ah, that's a tough question, isn't it? I hate to ask myself that question. What do I love above all things? And this is what he called us to do, is to love him above all things. He set our heart free. You've seen that book. It's, the title of the book is Paul, the Apostle of the Heart Set Free. Forget who the author is, but isn't that a great title? The Apostle of the Heart Set Free. When your heart is set free, it fixes, it fixes itself upon the Lord Jesus Christ. We love him above all things. And then the third thing is he, about false teaching. They're tolerating false teaching. Let me tell you how we tolerate false teaching. We just don't read the word. This is how I tolerate false teaching. I just, it's, I'm a surprise every time I find out something that the word of God teaches. That is us tolerating false teaching in our own hearts. What does the word actually say? What has God spoken to us about the way we live our lives? We are, we are called to believe the word of God. I don't need to remind you that the Bible it has, has statements in it that tell us, for example, all scripture is God-breathed. That is, it's a creation of God. All the written scriptures from Genesis to Revelation is God-breathed. I can rely upon it. What happens today too often is I trust Google more than I trust the Word of God. I trust a YouTube video more than I trust the Word of God. How do I find out what the Word of God says? Okay, let me give you, I'm going to give you a little lesson on how to find out what the Word of God says. You, you take it and you open it up and you start reading it. And you actually pay attention to what it's saying. 
this is the science of hermeneutics. The science of hermeneutics is how do I trans how do I come to understand what this book is talking about? And there's three steps: observation, interpretation, and application. And all that means is this. Let's say you're walking down the street in Oakland on a dark night in Oakland. You're walking down the street and you notice some shadows up ahead by a, an alley, and it looks like maybe somebody's run just hurried out of the way so you couldn't see them. So you observe this, and then you have to interpret it. So your interpretation may be, somebody's down there waiting to jump me and steal everything I have. That's interpretation. Now, you may be wrong, but if you observe things real closely and you really pay attention to what is really there, then you can come to make decisions about what it means after you've paid attention to what it says. I find, in all honesty, this is what I've found over the years, that one of the biggest problems people have in coming to understand the Bible is they don't pay any attention to what it says. I've had this happen many times. I've told you before in a, in a class teaching, and I'll say, what does verse 13 say about Jesus Christ? And literally, you can, you can count on this. People will raise their head and look up to the ceiling. What does verse 13 say? I'm, not, I'm just picking a random verse. But because they don't, they're not used to paying attention to what the Word of God says. So, for example, 2 Timothy 3.16, for all Scripture is inspired of God. I pay attention to what it says, and then I have to ask the question, what in the world does that mean? What does inspired of God mean? Now, a lot of people think they read that and they think, you know, the Bible says all Scripture is inspiring. That's not what it says. It says all Scripture has been inspired by God, which means and when I look closely and I dig in a little bit, I discover that means that all of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, everything that's been written, is God-breathed, quite literally. Paul actually coined a word to describe this, theonoustos. It means breathed out by God. But why did he choose such a word? Why did he come up with that word? Because it's a very vivid way of saying it's a creation of God. The God of the universe gave us a book through the instrumentality of men that is God-breathed. It's the very product of God's hand and his creative power. So in this book, I mean, this book that you have, however it's bound, whatever translation it is, what what this represents, what this is, is the creation of God that's been given to you so that you could understand the mind of God. God has revealed himself to you through his word. And he's actually given it to you in the form of a library of 66 books, and it tells one story. The story begins in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and then it goes through a whole story, creation, the fall, redemption, how God is, is going to deal with the fall, how he's going to bring us back into a right relationship with himself, the coming of Messiah, everything in the Old Testament, every... every uh, covenant, for example, in the Old Testament, the Noahic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, all those covenants point to ultimately fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And so if I, if I want to, uh, if I want to come to where I don't tolerate false teaching, what I need to do is I need to dig into this word for myself. And here's what God's done. He's implanted in your life the Holy Spirit 
to, to give you the, the ability to understand the Word of God. I've heard people say, and you've all heard this, somebody says to you, well, I've tried reading the Bible, but it doesn't make any sense to me. Let me ask you, uh, Dave, what would your wife say if when you sent her a love letter from wherever it was you were and when you guys were not together and you wrote her a letter and she says, you know what, I've tried reading your letter, but it doesn't make any sense to me. Maybe she has said that, I don't know. But, but you, that, would, that would be an insult, wouldn't it? You think God is capable of giving you his revelation in a form that you can come to understand? You think that God is, has that ability? Absolutely. And so when he says that all scriptures God breathed, it means that God has given you a revelation that is meant for you to understand it. And then the application of it is, so what should I do? If this is true, what should I do? And so what these people, when he says, when he basically confronts them about the fact that they were tolerating false teaching, it's something that we need to be careful about. And the only way I can stop tolerating false teaching is actually dig into the book for myself and find out what it's actually saying and come to understand what the Word of God says. Since you, as a believer, have the Holy Spirit living in you and you have His Word, this God-breathed book, this revelation from God, then I don't care what you say. There's no use even telling me that you can't understand it. I know you can understand it because you have the Holy Spirit and you have His Word. I do believe it's possible for you to ignore it, I do believe it's possible for you to discount it and want something different than the Word of God. Like a lot of people, what they want, they're looking for a church where the guy gets up and says, you know, the Lord spoke to me this week, and he said, this is what you ought to do. Because they don't want to hear from an old book. But this is the Word of God. Whatever dream I had last night that was really confusing, if I were to tell you about that, it wouldn't edify you at all, because it's not God-breathed. But we have, the, we have the Word of God. And He wants us to actually come to know it so that we don't tolerate false teaching. I love it when somebody questions me about something I've said. I don't understand that. That doesn't make sense to me. You said this, but the Bible over here says this. How do you fit those two together? Well, I better be able to figure, tell you how that fits together. Shouldn't I? Yes, absolutely. And those kind of questions are the best kind of questions. When somebody comes to me and says, you know what, I'm a little bit confused by what you said. Well, praise the Lord, you're not a lot confused. If you're just a little confused, that's, that's good news. But God wants you to grasp his word. And this is what he was furious about with, the, with his people in Israel in the temple. That they tolerated false teaching. And the only measure, the only way you can tell if, if a teaching is false is, does it measure up with the Word of God? Is this the Word of God? And the only, this is where we find the Word of God. It's not in some dream I've had. It's not I've heard a voice. I don't trust anybody. I don't trust anything anybody says when they say to me, you know, God spoke to me and he said this. Well, he very well may have, but this is what he's given me. And so this is the only thing that I have that's authoritative over my life. This tells me how to relate to my wife and my children and to you and to the whole world. 
And I don't care if you've had a dream. And I'm not saying God never speaks to anybody in a still, small voice. I'm saying I don't, God has not called me to listen to every, everybody's rendition of his still, small voice. He's called me to believe his word. And he's called you to believe his word. And so just because I get up and say something with some kind of conviction doesn't mean it's true. It means it's true if it is the word of God. If it's what the Bible says. And so it's good to ask when you hear something taught and you wonder, wow, but that seems like that contradicts this. Well, then let me figure out how to explain it. That's what I need to be able to do. And then they ignored biblical wisdom. They didn't pay enough attention to the word of God to even tell that when David called one of his descendants Lord, it was because that descendant was the eternal son of God who coming into the world to die for us is nothing less than the eternal son of God. And so David called his descendant Lord because he knew he, had, he was God himself. God the son himself would come into the world. And then finally, practicing showy religion. Oh, God forbid that we ever do that. God forbid that this church ever turns into showy religion. We don't wear clerical robes. We don't put collars on backwards. We don't do any of that because what that is is an adaptation of the old covenant and the, the priesthood's garments what God's called us to do is to be plain-faced in our relationship with each other. We are believers. The thing that's glorious about you is not your clothing. It's the fact that you have the Holy Spirit living in you. The Holy Spirit has taken up residence in your life, believer, and he lives there. And so you don't have to have, be a part of showy religion. We don't have to uh, act as though we are better or more religious than anybody. You understand what religion is. Religion is our effort to get God to be pleased with us. It's a total failure. It will never work. We don't practice religion. We believed the gospel of Jesus Christ. We put faith in Christ. And so I hope the Holy I hope that the Lord Jesus Christ, the true light, shines into your heart today. I hope the the true light shines into this local church today. The most important thing about us as the people of God are these very things, that we are worshipers of the living and true God. We submit to the authority of the only one who has absolute authority over us, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. There's nobody else. And so it's to him that we submit. And so I just want to encourage you that the Lord Jesus Christ, the true light, which enlightens every man, as you read his word and you're exposed to him, he's going to show you what's really going on in your heart. And so you remember the great commandment that Jesus, when he was asked, what's the greatest commandment of all? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. Because that's the most important thing that we do. The most important thing we do as the people of God is to follow Christ in humility and obedience and faith. That's what he's called us to. And so when we get into private conversations, this is what we've been called to do. We've been called to build one another up in the most holy faith. What does that mean? 
I want to do everything I can to encourage you to trust the Lord Jesus. He's faithful. He's absolutely faithful. Regardless of what you're facing, regardless of what you're facing, whether it's physical pain or if it's depression or whatever it is, the only one who has the power to work in your life to set you free is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's the one we proclaim. And we're going to come to the Lord's table in a few minutes. And we're going to celebrate what Christ has done for us in those two elements, the loaf, the one loaf from which we partake, and the cup from which we drink. The cup is the new covenant in his blood. It's our relationship with Christ based upon his work for us on the cross. And we partake of this loaf because there's one body. The body of Christ has been given, and now we are members of that one body. We have come to be the body of Christ, and so we're one with each other. And we can speak truth to one another. We can build one another up in the most holy faith. We can pray in the Holy Spirit. And we together can be waiting in a glorious anticipation of the coming of Christ who's on his way. He's coming back. He's coming back. Isn't that wonderful news? I mean, that's good news. Jesus is coming back. And so I want to pray for us, and then we're going to sing one more song, and then we'll come to the Lord's table and partake together. Let's pray. Our Father, we bow our hearts before you, Father. We thank you that we are the people of God. We thank you, Father, that you condescended to choose us and to bring us into the family, to give us the Holy Spirit, to give us eternal life, to give us a future. Father, we thank you for all of those glorious promises you've made us that fill our hearts with hope. We thank you that you've made us a part of the body of Christ. Thank you that you've given us a love for each other. Father, we thank you that the body of Christ is a place that when we come, we're coming among a a group of people who love Christ above all and love one another. And I just pray, Father, we would always have that atmosphere. That would always be the atmosphere of this local church. It wouldn't be some haranguing about some hobby horse we have, but it would be the declaration of who Jesus Christ is. Please work in our hearts and lives, we pray. And as we come to the Lord's table, help us to come prepared with our hearts prepared in humility and faith in Jesus Christ. How we thank you so much for what you've done in our lives and what you are doing and the future that we face in Christ. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. To this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.